Blog Talk Radio. We're live at Hymn 17. It's Wednesday. I have Rick Crone, one of the leading thought leaders around emerging technology. What connected health, mobile health, e-health, virtual health, virtual health, and you got several talks today. But Rick, tell us kind of a bit about you, and then uh, let's talk about your talks today. Well, let's start at the beginning. About 20 years ago, I was a new employee at, with, working directly for Douglas Goldstein, and I, I can never thank him enough for helping me get established in this industry. I've since moved on to health IT consulting, and as a means of promoting the practice and establishing myself as sort of a luminary in the field, I've read several books. Fortunately, those books have been published by in 2012 on mobile health care, moving on from mobile health to connected health. A book that Doug is holding in his lap is, a, is uh, just been published at this conference uh, and it is on the topic of connected health. It's a contributed book, so we have a variety of uh, healthcare luminaries from across the spectrum of healthcare talking about how connected health is being implemented you know, in their practices, in their enterprises, or on a population health basis. So how is this different than the mobile health book? What evolved from your, <clears throat> the mobile health book that I contributed to a couple years back? Well, our contention is that uh, you know there's there's been three phases of you know connected health. The first was in the 90s when it was all about just connectivity. The second phase was about mobility, which was in the mid 00s, and now we're talking about the personalization of health. And our books have sort of traversed the same path, talking about how healthcare has moved from being an enterprise and a siloed um, sort of phenomenon to being more personal, more personal, more retail, more consumer oriented. And this book sort of illustrates that through several case studies about wearables, about things like virtual health or virtual health care, and about the ways that the consumer becomes more integrated and more engaged in healthcare. So what's the biggest takeaway or the biggest insight you think from this book relative to the enterprise challenge of going from a business-to-business wholesale industry to a direct-to-consumer industry? I think it's, it, it, you know, if you want to kind of sort of an umbrella concept, I think it's about the whole calculus of healthcare is changing. So the, the patient is becoming more in, in, embedded into the whole circle of care delivery. The patient is becoming more accountable for their own healthcare. And the patient is less the person, the, sort of the end of the loop in healthcare and more sort of the central figure in healthcare. Um, so what are, the, what are the key recommendations that you would share with healthcare executives trying to make the transition from just dealing directly with payers and with consumer responsibility and out-of-pocket increasing and moving to this whole next generation of uh, person empowerment and shift of risk to providers and patients? Well, traditionally, healthcare has been kind of hidebound, and I think that there has to be sort of a real sort of evolution in thinking about how healthcare is going to occur in the future. There's a lot of talk about hospitals becoming just basically acute care and you know, uh, you know, ER, you know, emergency rooms in the future, and how healthcare is going to occur in such different ways that there won't be a need for bricks and mortar the way that they have that today. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen overnight, or or suggesting that there's not a need for enterprise level physical structures to conduct. What I am suggesting, though, 
is that healthcare is simply going to occur differently in the future. It's going to occur differently because there are means to personalize, to sort of um, create healthcare mechanisms, tools like a, a Fitbit that I'm wearing right now, or channels of communication that allow the patient to actually be involved in healthcare when they're not sitting face to face with a physician, and healthcare um, mechanisms that allow patients to become more proactive, more accountable, and hopefully more preventive in their terms of healthcare maintenance. So I do a lot of work in personalized health, the intersection of wearables, uh, electronic health, omic data with the Innova Center for Personalized Health. So we're on the forefront of that. The challenge that I think health systems have is that all our systems are structured for transactions. Right. We've trained everybody, the reimbursement, so follow the money. And still, despite all the conversations about value, less than 5 to 10% of the actual risk is shifted to providers in value-based agreements. So we're stuck with infrastructure trained for transactions, organized for transactions, and we're trying to move to a value world and longitudinal outcomes of events because what happens to somebody after a knee replacement depends on what they do. Do they gain weight? Do they have physical therapy? It's not just the surgery and the doctors. Right. So I think the biggest person left out of the whole equation of shared savings is the person. Right. They're not participating. And they're at the, they're, if there's closed-loop communication, they're at the end of the loop. There's two things that, that might serve as sort of the engine of change. One is, Dr. Doug, as you mentioned, is follow the money. So if payers, if the people who are actually putting the bill, you know, determine that there's a, a value in sort of shifting, you know, responsibility and accountability from the provider onto the patient and the patient incentive to actually become more accountable, I think you'll see that there's, there's more of a, a less of a, an enterprise focus to healthcare and more of a personalized focus. The second is healthcare is becoming more retail. And that's no more is that uh, obvious than in you know sort of the wearables market, where you know the the biggest uh, the biggest uh, source of revenue for wearables right now is on the consumer side, health and fitness people who are you know the health conscious, and that has you know sort of a uh, um, an adjunct value to healthcare delivery in that it's making the person you know that the patient is more of a healthcare consumer than a patient at this point. So those are, I think are the, it's the two big drivers. But I would I would. Um, acknowledge that, you know, healthcare is, you know, the dinosaur of, you know, technology delivery. There's, I, I wouldn't consider or describe healthcare as being at the forefront of innovation. So there, there is a cultural issue as well. Well, I think we have a couple tracks to innovation. I, I think that health and medical care has adopted a lot of innovations, and I think we have to separate clinical innovations in terms of minimally invasive surgery and even minimally, minimally invasive surgery and early EROS, early emulation of patients from technology. And the problem is the re regulations and reimbursement systems, uh, and we had, uh, you know, one of the leading telemedicine companies here, the regulations of doctors in every 50 states. So we have a number of barriers and hurdles in implementing certain information technologies. Uh, well, so what's your recommendation to the – we're, we're about to change policy. So what's your recommendation to – uh, the Republicans and Democrats and leaders on the Hill who are going to flip the apple cart again in healthcare policy. And that, and that's a real concern there because, you know, what replaces what we have right now? So is it, is it going to sort of, you know, flip back to, you know, high level, you know, top down enterprise, you know, led, you know, healthcare delivery, or is, you know, is there just going to be, you know, 
block grants given to the states, you know, from which they decide, you know, what where the most value can be distilled. I don't know. I mean, that that has that remains to reveal itself. But also, you know, to your point, um, Doug, I think that there needs to be, you know, some sort of, you know, path of connectivity between traditional healthcare delivery, the way the systems that we have in place, the infrastructure that we have, and what's rapidly emerging, which is a new sort of, you know, cultural shift in the way that, you know, healthcare you know, engagement occurs. It's not necessarily in a physician office. It's not necessarily in the, in the emergency room. You know, it's, it may be happening more at a distance. It may be happening in the home. You know, maybe in, in um, facilities that, you know, now don't require as much intensity as a, as a hospital, let's say. So do you see uh, health systems and physician leaders really moving from transaction to relationships? Not, I mean, kicking and screaming. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you know, physicians by and large are not entrepreneurial. They are not pioneers. So I, I wouldn't suggest that, you know, they're leading the charge. They're not. But if you can provide incentives to physicians to be more proactive in, you know, and again, we're talking about value-based care, but if you can, if, and getting away from, and, you know, if, if they rely on transactions, if they rely on fee-for-service, there is no incentive. But if there is a value in, you know, if, you know performance-based measurement, if you know, physicians can be incented to keep people out of their offices, yes, there's a real opportunity here to, and, and this is on a population basis. You know, you can do it with chronic care. You can do it with people who are in, you know, remote areas or specific populations. But I think that there are ways that, you know, physicians, even hospitals can be incented. And, you know, it's, you know, forget ACA or, or you know, ACOs for, for the time, for the moment. But if there are ways, at, you know, on a, on a, at a high level through CMS or through Humana or, or through people who are actually putting the bill to, you know, to incent providers to you know, kind of deliver care in new ways such that it's not retrospective, it's not reactive. It's not treatment. It's, you know, diagnostic and, you know, forward-leaning and, you know, preventive. No, we need data to support the move to value and outcomes. But I believe that, and I interact with a lot of physicians that are doing the right thing to the detriment of their financial right. incentives. I have a lung cancer surgeon who's been um, following patients for nine years relative to recurrences and whatever. He's not reimbursed for that, but it's the right thing to do right. for patients. So I think that we have... Many, many physician leaders who recognize that they're caught in, in an old reimbursement, follow the money system, and we really need policy change, but we also need data to support those value and outcomes and it, so know, that we know how to really price uh, a longitudinal episode of care. You know, and that's the, um, that's the Achilles heel of healthcare is that you know, we are sort of stuck in a reimbursement system that doesn't value innovation or entrepreneurship or you know, the, you know, answering a higher calling in terms of, you know, providing services. The second thing is that, you know, to, and I, I, I don't want to, um, uh, to, to, you know, misrepresent physicians in any way. There are physicians who are, you know, you're drawn by a higher calling that do feel that they need to provide services that may or may not, that may not be reimbursed. So I, I do want to make that point. The second thing is when we talk about data, uh, Doug, you know, that too, that is a double-edged sword too, because there's a real danger that by creating, um, you know, uh, channels of data communication, you know, physicians particularly can become overwhelmed. And they already complain about that. You know, what information do they really need? How much of it is relevant? You know, what, how much of it is simply adding layers of complexity to their practice? And I don't think we've, we've kind of noodled through that and kind of figured out what the, you know, how to smooth out the, you know, the rough edges of data. I agree that we need to have, you know, data-driven, you know, uh, you know decision-making but at the same time, I think that we have to be wary of creating too much data. Well, I think the, <clears throat> the data overload to the care team and the doctor can be handled with um, 
artificial intelligence or machine learning in the cloud relative to priorities and what in the context of a certain patient care. But yeah, let's yeah. um what's your favorite chapter in here and how do people get the book? Because uh, there's a lot of insights that we talked about that will guide people forward in terms of navigating how to apply technology to create a connected ecosystem, correct? My favorite chapter was written by Rick Crone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, it's actually a, a something. Mine too. It's, yeah, it's actually the, the chapter I wrote on uh, virtual reality because it is very forward-leaning and it's very, um, you know, sort of uh, its perspective. And it sort of kind of heralds in this, you know, new era of, you know, technology-driven um, care. Um, as far as the book itself, um, it's available on Amazon, um, but it can be purchased at the Hims Bookstore uh, or through CRC Press. So that's Connected Health. And uh, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, my, my email address is rkrohn, R-K-R-O-H-N, at healthsend.com. Uh, my practice is healthsense, healthsend.com. So I encourage you to contact me. And your Twitter handle is? It's at Rick Krohn. <laughs> And that's how you can search for the book. So thanks for joining us today. And Enjoy thanks it, for uh, leading the way and uh, the luminary work you're doing to help people navigate smarter. Thank thanks. you, Doug. Awesome. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Long time, Doug. Long <laughs> way. So, so tell me, what, what are you doing now? Uh, I'm responsible for business development innovation at Inova. So we acquired the former Exxon Mobil campus. No, I just I'm not doing much of the talking. You're doing a little talking. Yeah. 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 Antigen. <clears throat> You're an innovator, a physician, leader, and what does antigen do? Well, uh, the, the name antigen actually means uh, hair growth. It's a growth cycle of the oh, hair. I need some and, more hair, huh? <laughs> it's a growth cycle. But uh, we actually, the reason we formed our company was there's some solutions that I need as a physician that just don't exist in the marketplace. Yeah. And some uh, glaring deficiencies for patient safety that we really had to build from my clinic. And what, what, were, what was the gap in patient safety, and what did you build? Well, the, uh, we do things very differently than uh, the rest of the world does. We actually track events. Everybody in this office or this whole building tracks patients. The entire communications industry of the world does it differently than we do in medicine. So okay. help me understand the difference between okay. events and... All right. But you know the answer to this. Uh, think of FedEx. Yes. Think of the hotel you stayed in last night. Yes. The plane. Yes. They all gave you one thing in common, and that was a confirmation number. Okay. That is the only way they're able to keep track of the money, the communication, the event, the outcome, your quality of stay. It's all based on tracking numbers. So medicine is communication. How do you track that a patient was told their Poorly. results? <laughs> Very poorly. Let me tell you how poorly it is. You ready? The third leading cause of death is this industry in this environment. The third leading cause of death. 
according to a study from Johns Hopkins last year, medicine errors ranked number three right after heart attacks and stroke. How about that? Okay, so you've developed a system that tracks events? Absolutely, absolutely. And people get confirmation numbers where we go? Absolutely. Let, let me tell you how. From womb to tomb? From womb to tomb. From, from uh, point of service through completion of service, we actually track the entire event. And it doesn't matter what EHR you have. doesn't matter what lab you have. It doesn't matter what network you're on. None of that matters. So it cuts across all specialties? Uh, everyone. Let, let me tell you how it works. Okay. How's it work? All right. So you, you're going to go on a uh, plane flight. Delta gives you your confirmation number. Yes. You pay your money. Yes. You actually communicate with them. You show up. They have a little number for you. You, you go on the plane, and you get off the plane. Everything is in one central location. You can go back and look at that event and know when you made the schedule, when, you, when the plane took off, how much you paid, everything. Just like when I got my Alexa from Amazon, I had a tracking number through the whole process, Absolutely. Right? So it's the same exact concept. So what we do is, what I noticed, there's two things that are a problem in medicine. When I took your biopsy, I assigned a unique identifier code, just like FedEx. I share that with you, the patient, the physician, the lab, the medical malpractice company, and soon CMS. So everybody knows in real time what's going on. Then you track it with your smartphone, just like you're tracking your shipment from uh, Alexa. And this is what antigens do. This is what we do. We've been doing it for two years. But let me tell you this. We drive that data right into the LIS of the lab. So there's no errors in communication. No data, all the data is secured. You actually have a window as a patient as to when that data went over, when the results back you also at the center of the solar system uh, and that is a major shift in how the practitioners in the field astronomers so, so, uh, view the universe that's a paradigm change it always takes a generation largely because it's funny, Max Planck, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, said in 1918, uh, a new scientific truth does not win acceptance by persuading its opponents. It wins acceptance because its opponents eventually die. A new generation comes up. Right? Now, I would rather, even if in the old generation, I'd rather survive the new you. We need to be and be, the, the important thing is be clear about what's reality versus what seems to be reality. So let's connect this yes. into healthcare then, because they'd love to get your perspective. What do you think, as far as as healthcare is concerned, then are we in the midst of a paradigm shift? And if so, where are we? Are we at are we at the crescendo of it? Are we just starting out? What do you think? Well, so there is something. One of the Thomas Kuhn in his book about paradigms points out how one of the major obstacles to a paradigm shift. Uh, and it's, it's a culture, not just a scientific discovery, because the scientific discovery is commonly not accepted, mm -hmm. because it means that all the people in charge of the wrong view are wrong, and they tend to be unhappy about that. A good example of this, the most recent one that I know of, is when the field of economics 
was turned upside down over the last 30, 40 years by the discovery of behavioral economics. Once the evidence that the old view doesn't work gets going, fights break out at conferences. People in the establishment or, or in journals writing papers about how stupid the, the new view is, people fight for their lives academically. So in healthcare, there's an additional problem, and the following is not a complaint, even though people think it's a, a complaint. The financial reality of the structure of the industry makes it very hard for people to start operating differently Correct. because the reimbursement will not follow the new model. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a much greater problem in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. Correct. And so we are at the stage where there are several companies here. I'm, I won't name names because it's not what I'm here for, but there are several companies here now far more than in the past that are really about giving patients full access to the information about themselves, their families, their kids, their elders, really truly. Now that's where it becomes useful to have a secure public storage thing, uh, publicly accessible, controllable by me. You know, I'm famous for the, for the song that Ross Martin made famous, right? Give me my damn data, right? <laughs> it's all about me, so it's fine. You know, that's, that's the, in contrast to that, you take a look at Harlan Krumholtz of Yale, who also has a PHR company, Hugo PHR. He said at the Connected Health Conference in the fall, he had, in, in the process of talking to providers about offering this pull all the patients' records together for them thing, um, a senior executive at a California system, not Kaiser, in case anybody's wondering, said, <laughs> you don't understand. We need affinity and loyalty. Why would we make it easier for one of our customers to leave us? Well, that's, that's the business reality. It is. I, you know, sure, it'll take a generation for the old view to basically age out of the population. Mm -hmm. Kids today, including medical students, I gave a lecture at Dartmouth Medical School earlier this month. Uh, they get it. They grew up in the world of, of course, it's my day. Yeah, and yeah. So on. But meanwhile, uh, it makes sense also to sort of activate the public, the consumer, the patient, the what I call the person who actually has the problem. Sure. Right to help them be in better control. Right, and being vocal about what they want and what needs well, they want. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's so important because so often after I give a speech, some people will say, well, my patients aren't like you. They're not asking for this. So we really need to speak up. And the funny thing about that is I'm fond of quoting that in the 1912 election in the U.S., women's suffrage was mm -hmm. on the ballot. And the anti-suffrage people, some of whom might have been jerks, I don't know, or some of them might have been really just honest, concerned thinkers, the brochure said no on suffrage because 90% of women aren't asking for it. Exactly <laughs> the same thing. Oh, it is exactly the same thing. And I'm reminded of that Henry Ford quote. You know, it, uh, it's... Gosh, he had said something along the lines of if he had asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah. And this is very much in that same vein where it's like they're, sometimes you're not exactly sure on a broad scale, like the, the mass, the right. population isn't exactly sure 
what it is that they're asking for, but then it starts to become clearer over time. Well, and nobody was asking for an iPhone. Right. When it came out. That, that's the Steve Jobs thing. Nobody yeah. was asking for an iPad. Who would have thought that within 10 years... We can't live have, without them. <laughs> well, you'd have things like this. I mean, this is a, you know, an FDA-approved EKG. Uh, now, for everybody who can't see Amazon. this... Um, we've we've got e-patient Dave holding up his phone, and he's got what are these sensors on the back these of it? Are, these are electrodes. They're electrodes, and it is an EKG yes. that you can do through your phone. It's a single lead EKG. That's incredible. Not as fancy as the six wires in your chest. Sure. But the guy who's famous for uh, expressing the need for this is Hugo Campos. Sure. And he can tell without being in the doctor's office. He has a bad heart. He can tell whether an arrhythmia that he's having, just by putting two fingers on the back of his iPhone, whether it's VTAC or AFib or whatever. Uh, it hasn't put doctors out of business. It right. hasn't put hospitals out of business. It just gives more information to the person who has the problem. And that's really what it's all about, right? It's getting more information well, to the to I the patient. Think so at the same time, I've heard executives say that they have a responsibility to the organization that hired them to protect the finances. So they, while they're doing their job, we need to do ours, right? Which is stick up for our families. Definitely. Well, you patient, Dave, and we could go. I could talk to you all afternoon. I truly could. Um, but we we appreciate you stopping by here at the Conversa Health booth and speaking with us um, with Health Innovation Media. Um, we are going to be talking now uh, to I think Matthew Holt has finally made his way over um, from wherever he was. So My I believe he's goodness. going to be sitting with us. Is that right? Um, <laughs> as soon as we can get him out of the conversation, okay. he's wrapped up in. But e-patient Dave, thank you so much. And for anybody who wants to read your blog about blockchain, where can they look for that information? So just Google e-patient Dave, spell it any way you want. And I'm the only one that comes up. when you get there, search for blockchain. <laughs> Definitely. E-patient okay. Dave, it's a delight to speak with you. Enjoy the rest of Thanks him. So thank much. you so much. Thank you. Okay, so we have a change in programming here that I've been just surprised of. So um, we are going to have Doug joining us back, and he's going to be sitting down for a moment with another guest. So, Doug, come on back over. Thank you. No problem. Pleasure to have us. <laughs> Thanks so much. E-Futurist, Tim 17 Dr. Delaney, one of the leaders in precision medicine, genomics, and uh, with SAP, and you, which has invented some incredible platforms. And we had one of your associates from France here the other, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So uh, give us the, give, quickly, what do you think about HIMSS? Is HIMSS, uh, are these technology companies on track? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, discussion and, and, you know, some really good direction and momentum we're getting. I mean, the focus on making data more interoperable, um, liquidity, and really being able to leverage it. I mean, to really uh, make progress on the journey to value-based care, we have to be able to really integrate the data from the clinical sphere, the financial, operational, and claims uh, at a service line level, right? And, and that's kind of the starting point where organizations can truly begin to understand care delivery and begin to actively manage it. And so I, I think we're making good progress. I think people uh, have their arms around what the problem is. Um, things like fire, uh, you know, standards, uh, they're beginning to emerge. And, and, and I think vendors, too, are beginning to support uh, interoperability to a greater degree. Right. So when we talk about any of these specific areas, social, environmental data, electronic health data, user-generated data, 
And then the fourth quadrant is uh, omic data. Yeah, yeah. That, the devil's in definitely <laughs> the details there because the complexity of that data is unbelievable. Absolutely. And, and yeah. that's been a focus of what you're doing at SAP, correct? Yeah, and no, we're definitely playing in the, the omic space. I think it's really interesting. Uh, you, you know, it's one area where you never lose a bet in terms of the complexity. <laughs> uh, you know, it always seems to be more complex, uh, you know, even the epigenetics, uh, you know, governing everything else uh, around right. it, right? So um, I think it's interesting also in terms of how you begin to pull the data from the omic sphere and begin to mash it up with clinical data. Because uh, there's really no uh, real standards today in terms of how to accomplish that. And it's really, uh, you know, a, a lot of um, uncertainty around what parts to bring in. I think everyone feels it's going to be big, um, but uh, not right, you know, right, right now in the next few months or a year, right? And so everyone, I think, has their eye on it. Um, and it just has a lot of uncertainty around how it's going to actually uh, shake out. Well, if you're a cancer patient, <laughs> I mean, from an immediate need standpoint, I think the huge complexity of cancers, how cancers change, Trying to create a longitudinal perspective, getting the data uh, yeah. to best treat yeah. patients. I, I think that there's a, from a cancer patient perspective, the need is now. No, for sure. I mean, I, I think we're at the point now where you know every cancer patient should be sequenced and, and uh, you know should identify if there's a a uh, you know mutation or, or some kind of uh, you know genetic marker that would indicate a one treatment being superior to another. And, and it's just uh, because when it works, it can work fabulously well. And so I think we're to that point. And sadly, many patients aren't uh, being sequenced. And sometimes um, the sequence information, uh, the mutation information, isn't even being leveraged necessarily to, to drive the right therapy. So I think, you know, as is always the case that, you know, in healthcare, unfortunately, I mean, it takes often a decade plus to get, you know, over 50% of the practitioners you know, practicing what's known to be, you know, the evidence-based medicine. So this is an ongoing challenge, I'm sure. So can you give us some examples of how SAP is uh, providing the ability for providers to address the challenges, some specific yeah. examples of, I know you do doing amazing things in soccer, but yeah. what, are we doing? what are you doing in health? And yeah, you like, might want to mention the soccer stuff too. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, uh, you know, SAP being a German company takes great pride, uh, you know, in helping power a lot of decision-making around the German uh, soccer team, which of course won the World Cup. Oh, uh, just the it. World it's, Cup. Yeah, exactly. So, and they used, you're, you're saying they used your technology to help them win the World Cup. That's what yeah, you, well, we, we would like to think we played a, a small part in it. But, yeah, I mean, we, we gave them, uh, you know, the ability to analyze uh, players' motions and, and cadence uh, and, and really, uh, you know, everything from, uh, you know, when people are taking a penalty shot, where they're likely to go uh, with it based on historic uh, data so it can be pulled up on the field, you know, to Amazing. tracking uh, motion uh, in, the, in the players. Because right? if you know, players, obviously, you know, uh, soccer Obviously, uh, you know, uh, aggressive sport in terms of the the, um, the physicality of it, right? And people begin to tire, and so we can begin to predict uh, when they're starting to go uh, toward the downside in terms of performance. Uh, you know, can swap people in and really get more technical in terms of how you're doing it. So there's a you know a huge amount of strategy um, in that. So yeah, we're actually doing that. Uh, but in the area, so that's like nano coaching, right? I mean, that's yeah. the huge detail. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So you have that. You have this incredible expertise, but how is it? How are you making it work in healthcare? Yeah, so I think healthcare, the fundamental challenge is, you know, and I, I felt this as a clinician that practiced for 14 years as a critical care physician. You know, oftentimes that had to make very, you know, challenging decisions with very limited data set. Uh, you know, we know there's data uh, out there in other silos within the institution or maybe out in the cloud, the web somewhere. 
uh, that might make us uh, help us make a better decision on the patient, but it just you couldn't bring it to bear to the point of decision for that patient. Uh, you know, and so beginning to do that with uh, HANA to really accelerate that process. And in the area of uh, oncology, like we talked about before, uh, you know, it's a, an area where um, you look at it only about 5% of patients are in, enrolled in clinical trials. And, and that might be okay if the other 95% were well represented. But um, the 95%, uh, you know, oftentimes are, are they're older, sicker, more ethnically diverse. They have other medical problems, you know, any of which would have um, prevented uh, them from being in the clinical trial. They would have been excluded from the trial. Yet that's kind of all you have to guide the therapy, that and the therapeutic choice, that and, and you know, the individual clinician's memory of, you know, patients who seem kind of similar to you. Uh, seem to do well in this med, and another patient who seems somebody didn't do well in this, right. so I'm going to do this. But you're essentially using anecdotal evidence, and, and, you know, as I'm fond of saying, you know, the plural of anecdotes doesn't equal good data, right? And so, you know, when you take a step back and, and think about it, you, you know, organizations since the advent of the EHR are tracking dutifully every patient going through, yet we're unable to bring that, that real-world evidence back into informed decision. We're not really leveraging the institutional memory of organizations. So, um, you know, what we're really able to do now is begin to take what was once data exhaust, it was just stored and archived and never reused, and turn it into real-world evidence that can drive the decision. So what we're doing in oncology, uh, it, yeah, we're working with uh, ASCO and Institute Gustave C. You spoke with Dr. Uh, Charles Ferte the other day around it. But um, so is, is begin to bring this knowledge to bear. So, for instance, we can go in uh, with an oncologist sitting next to a patient uh, and trying to make a decision about the best agent for them, going beyond just their, their gut and intuition in a clinical trial, again, which the patient might not have even qualified for for several right. reasons. Uh, dive into the medical record. Uh, the first step, of course, to your point earlier, is getting the molecular market, right? Yes. Unfortunately, in the real world, that exists typically in a pathology report or in a doctor's note, which are unstructured, right? So we have to dive in and do natural language processing, uh, first to the data and do linguistic analysis, because... Uh, the report might say, uh, you know, patient is, uh, uh, you know, uh, test BRCA positive today, however, has no family history, which is different from saying patient has history of BRCA positivity, however, test negative today. So we go in, we do NLP, linguistic analysis, map that into an ontology, and then take that tumor marker and then begin to dynamically create a microcord of matched patients, uh, leveraging both internal patients who've been seen before as well as patients in registries, uh, matching based on age, gender, ethnicity, uh, comorbidities, like if they have renal failure, um, very tightly matched with the patient at hand, including their tumor marker, with a key exception, they've all been treated and you know the outcome of, of the treatment, right? So you can generate what's called a Kaplan-Meier curve from that, which shows time uh, survival from time zero, where everyone's survived through five years, so your classic five-year survival. And so you can compare the five-year survival and the survival curves for varying therapies with a, a population very, very similar to the patient at hand. So it really is moving us toward uh, precision medicine, where you're able to very precisely be send real-world evidence. And, and again, this is a well-known fact, is that, you know, even a, a, uh, you know, a therapy that's successful in another organization, I mean, there's a lot of local factors to hospitals, whether it be expertise of the clinicians, the, the physical plant, the population they're treating, which causes variance in outcomes. So it's, you, you know, while you always want to go with a randomized control trial as a gold standard, um, the real-world outcomes within a given institution are incredibly important to understand it and to factor into the treatments. So that's uh, an incredible amount of detail, but this, your solution, yeah. which is called HANA, right? Yeah. Is, ASCO is using it, so you've created and aggregated these comparative data sets to power precision medicine, right? So this is available now, and 
Yes. You're yes. networking many cancer centers together. So can you expand on that relationship with ASCO and a number of these cancer centers? Yeah, so yeah absolutely. So this is all built on HANA. HANA is the, the in-memory computing platform that um, SAP built, and, and they'll give you a really quick genesis. And if I get too detailed, let me know. But uh, I'm very passionate about this. But, uh, you know, basically it, it's, it's, it was created because where we serve 25 different sectors, over 75% of the world's GDP flows through SAP. And so we really have uh, the largest of the companies globally. And in information-intensive sectors, you know, a little over a decade ago, we noticed that, or we felt it, uh, really running the, the uh, software, that the old disks, where there was just far too much silos of information, uh, both internal and external, and they were hitting a complexity wall. And this was happening about the same time as business was becoming more and more globalized and really shifting from, you know, something where it was a little more slower in pace to something at real time. Right. Uh, you know, so organizations can no longer afford to re- look at what happened last quarter last year to guide decision making. They really needed to be more organic where like an organism, they're able to respond to what's happening right now and adjust or even better begin to predict what's likely to happen. And so this was built, uh, you know, um, released in, I think, 2004, 2005. Um, and, um, and I, no, actually, I'm, I'm sorry, in 2010. Right. I got that you wrong. In 2010, at least. But I think the bottom line is that, you know, we're, this is um, a multi-billion dollar R&D budget over a number of years. And, and so this is what we built the Connected Health Platform on top of. And what that is, it takes the, what, what HANA is, an in-memory computing platform, and we layer on, uh, you know, data ingestion tools that are specific for healthcare data sources, uh, agile data model, which is easily extensible, uh, medical ontology, and uh, NLP engine, which is optimized uh, for healthcare, amongst other things. So it really is a healthcareized uh, instance of HANA called the Connected Health Platform. And so, and then a specialized version for oncology. Yes, yes. And so ASCO With is using many, many, in the US. Many cancers. Yeah, yeah. And in Europe, worldwide. Uh, worldwide, yeah. Uh, Institute Christophersi, we talked to Charles yes. yesterday. Uh, so they're a member of what's called Cancer Core Europe, uh, and so that's a consortium there of uh, in Europe, and they're to uh, move to the platform as well. All powered by SAP. Yes. Exactly. Wow, it's going to make a big difference in people's lives. Are you seeing some outcomes now? And well, we're, and how do people yeah. find out? Where do they go on the web? Find out more about the detail that we started talking about and some of the outcomes you've achieved, other than helping the soccer team win the, win the World World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you can go to the SAP website uh, in the healthcare section, and we have a lot of information around it there. You know, we're, we're early on still, and so we're excited to see this transition to you know, broad use clinically. Uh, I think you know, any provider who sits down and is able to store the data uh, and, and really move to what I call a more conversational approach to have a user interface on massive data sets, and you can start out with an idea and drill down on it and explore the data. And based on what you're seeing, adjust your line of questioning. And unlike other technologies where predefined dimensions or um, data cubes that are that are constructed in certain ways, uh, you know, that, that help you as long as you go within the dimensions that, that they've formed, you're good. What we're able to do with this technology is really make a conversation. So, you know, you as a domain expert, an administrator can sit down with data and, and really explore it through and, and find an answer pretty rapidly. Well, thanks for stopping by. At oh, my Hinsdale. pleasure. Thanks, Doug. And uh, we'll be talking to you next year. Absolutely. And this- maybe some specific examples and outcomes with with patients and uh, Absolutely. improved therapy. Yeah. Next year in Vegas, right? Yeah, yeah. next year in Vegas. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, I left Webb in November of 09. So that's
That's uh, almost eight. And hello, this is Fred Goldstein uh, at the Conversa booth here. Him 17, day three. It's been an exciting morning. Um, joined now by Michael Guy. And Michael is with Information Builders. Correct. We're excited to have you here. Um, some work with Information Builders, a series of uh, webinars for them a couple months back that we did on discussing build versus buy and data. So, Michael, uh, give us a little bit of background on the, yourself and the company to start. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I, I started off in the working world as an accountant, uh, constantly making debits equal credits, and decided to get an information technology because uh, you're just never going to learn everything that there is to learn. So I uh, started off in application programming and ran an application development shop for a utility company, and then I moved over to the software side of the world and technical support and then uh, pre-sales support and ultimately in sales. And so I've been in primarily software sales for uh, a lot of years, uh, healthcare the last 10 years. Um, recently came back to IBI for my second tour of duty. Uh-huh. I was here a number of years ago and uh, for personal reasons had to had to make a move to a different city, uh, but uh, glad to be back after 18 years. Um, so Information Builders is, uh, I think we're celebrating our 40th year this year, we're a privately held company out of New York. We uh, we made our entry into the technology world via analytics um, and discovered over the years that we were really, really good at um, accessing data across a variety of systems. And as we looked at the changing healthcare market and when really the, the value-based care initiative started, it became clear to us that in order to really be effective in terms of lowering costs and uh, improving care, you need to be able to access data across all the many different siloed systems within healthcare. So we built a product called Omni Health Data. Uh, we have both a provider edition as well as a payer edition uh, that really automates the data integration, data acquisition, data cleansing, mastering process to ultimately deliver a data repository that can span the continuum of care, leverages itself for self-service analytics as, as well as just analytics in general. And when you talk about pulling data from different sources, can you talk about some of those components? I guess it's like hospital uh, and then others. Can, what, what other sure. components you know, so you the pull EM, together? The various EMR systems that are out there, <clears throat> excuse me, ambulatory systems, uh, pharma systems, just all the various systems that you would see. And, and can you also pull data from non-healthcare-related systems and bring them into yep. that warehouse as well so as people begin to look at broader data sets? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that um, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about our partnership with St. Luke's, but uh-huh. sure. one of the applications that we're bringing to the market with them is around patient satisfaction. So that's pulling data from Press Ganey as other well outside sources. And then that goes into a warehouse where they can select that you also provide expertise about building those BI tools and using various tools, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Web Focus is our analytic tool that, uh-huh. that's for the desktop. Um, has a has a number of wonderful features about it uh, that allows folks to do some very in-depth analytics um, as well as self-service analytics. This really is an interesting time because the data is becoming critical. Everyone knows it, whether it's Population health or segmentation, stratification, where's my risk in my population, all those things. You really have to pull together much 
data sets because the granularity you can get out of that then really allows you to target individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the quadruple aim and we just, you know, pick on lowering the cost of care, you really need to understand where are all of the components that drive your costs for a procedure, right? So not only uh, things within the hospital itself, what are what are labor costs that goes into that procedure? Uh, what are the supply supply costs that go into that procedure? Really going to be effective about driving down the cost of care. You've got to be able to access all of those systems that contribute to the cost of care, so you know where to analyze. And I would assume you build a system like that that has that multiple different data feeds, different data sets, all kinds of different vendors. It has to be fairly flexible, I would guess, so you can link to all these different people. And so one hospital system, you may be building it one way or another, it might be a different. Is that pretty much? Yeah. So the, the underlying data repository is very flexible and optimizable to, mm-hmm. you know, take care of the nuances from one hospital system. To mm-hmm. but, but I think most hospital systems will get that. You know, 80 to 90 percent of the analytics that they do are consistent across. The same stuff. Exactly. Right. Right. You're mentioning St. Luke's. Right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. What's so there? that is a first of a kind uh, partnership within Information Builders. St. Luke's has been a phenomenal customer to work with. Uh, they went through an RFP process a couple of years ago. They were really trying to build. Um, a, a data repository that would allow them to do analytics and the things that they needed to do to address the, the quadruple claim. So they they uh, purchased our Omni Health Provider Edition. They purchased and in the course of 18 months, they built over 60 applications that pull data from over 30 data sources. And wow. so uh, what we've done is we've looked at that inventory of applications that they've built. We've highlighted four that we're going market market, and those are around hospital patient experience, a hospital system balance scorecard, physician practice management, as well as the inpatient safety indicators. And, and that one really is broader than just patient safety. Indicators. So they'll look at outcomes, they'll look at oncology, they'll look at infections. So what we're doing is we're taking those assets, we're bringing them in-house, productize them, and then we'll sell them back out to the market. And so, in essence, another hospital has already pre-done. A- absolutely. So we believe with the automation that we that we can bring to the table in terms of data acquisition and the fact that all of these dashboards have been built already, within a four- or six-month time frame, we should be able to immediately expose all of those uh, analytic the data and begin to use applications immediately. And do you have a report or white paper written up on that? On we that? do. Where do you find that? Booth 1831. 1831. Or and you on can the web? go to the informationbuilders.com. Info- Great. Yeah. So there they can pick up that report. So what kind of new things or where do you see the field? Wow. There, there's so <laughs> much going on. Going on. I, I certainly feel that um, looking at predictive and prescriptive analytics around propensity for a disease rate or effectiveness of care plans, I think those are those are areas that, that the industry is starting to look at. There's still a lot of basic blocking and tackling. People are still trying to get their arms 
on the data. Um, but as we look out, I see that. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in incorporating behavior, behavioral and socioeconomic data. Um, I, for me personally, the, the world of mental health and behavioral health provides a great opportunity for us to leverage data to really change the cost equation. Um, and what makes that challenging is not only do you have to have the behavioral data and the mental health data about the patient, but you also have to have the clinical data about it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think Information Builders is, is uniquely positioned to bring both of those disciplines of data together for a care team to make effective decisions about right. a patient. No, I really think, you know, you've seen a fair amount of it around the conference over the last couple of days and also, you know, just in the industry as a whole, recognizing that there's a whole lot going out in the world, going on out in the world for individuals, all the social determinants of health, and that data needs to be ingested, presented to a provider in a usable format, and then allowing them to then make the appropriate recommendations or behavior change types approaches to help that individual out. Absolutely. I definitely agree. And so you're looking out building those in over time? Yes, absolutely. We, uh, we have a number of other apps from um, St. Luke's that we're taking a look at to uh, release in this next bundle of applications. Um, so they, they just have a vast wealth of uh, already built applications that we think uh, the market would be right for. Right. And so it sounds like, you know, the, the information builder system is you can take something that you, that's been built by somebody else within the app and the system and use it as an app, or you could do your own, it's, of course. which is different from some where it's, here's what you get. You know, we've, we've configured these 50 and that's it or whatever. This is a more of a customizable application. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the choices out in the market today are buy tools and build it yourself. Right. Or take something that's been built and conform your business to that. And and what we're offering is the ability to take something that's been built, customize it if you need to. But we really believe that the time to value with this approach is going to be potentially one-third of what you would do in a build your own do it yourself yeah completely scenario build it right right because you and, and information builders also has a broader non-healthcare business right oh of course yeah and that, and, and and i want you to touch because that expertise can be brought into healthcare where some of these industries are possibly further out along in their development than than us healthcare folks absolutely so yes we have a strong presence in financial services and insurance a strong present presence in state local government but I think uh, if you look at the retail industry and the financial industry, you know, 20 years ago, they began to struggle with you and I as a consumer, right? And healthcare is just beginning to right. realize that I'm not a I'm a consumer. And so I thought that we can bring from the knowledge that information building has and these other industries that have really engaged with the consumer and bring that expertise to healthcare as well. And I, and I think that's right on target because, you know, and I've seen this now the last two years, healthcare really is beginning to understand that these folks in the retail business have been doing this a lot longer. They know it. We can take, can make me decide what I'm buying. Why can't I turn that lens on changing my behavior about my health or changing oh, yeah. a provider's behavior? So you've been working that market, as you said, for years, now, yes. 40 years at the company, and building those platforms, and obviously that expertise can flow across in the healthcare sector, which I yeah. think is great. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I think uh, we, we've really got to affect the behavior of the consumer 
to really move folks to that wellness side of the equation if we're really going to affect the cost of care. Are there any um, things you've seen here at the conference that are exciting you, or uh, has, how has the conference been for Information Builders itself? Well, it's it's been so good for Information Builders that I've had an opportunity to wander the floors. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, the booth's been hammered. The booth has been hammered. My feet are tired. That's great. <laughs> well, okay, that's fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any, any new exciting stuff coming out? You talked about the St. Luke's. Any others? Yeah, well, that that is definitely, uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing. I mentioned earlier that we've got a provider edition of uh-huh. Omni Health and a payer edition. Over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to actually be converging those two data models because, as as you well know, there's a lot of convergence going on in the market between payers and providers. So will this allow providers then to begin to have the resources and tools they need to manage risk? Absolutely. Oh, as, fantastic. As well as, as providers as, as well. As, as, as do the, yeah, as <clears throat> providers do the provider stuff and then begin to manage more like a health plan as we see that convergence you talked yeah, about. Yeah, because I think the more and more we move into value-based care, the more and more risk sharing is going to become for the norm. So you've, yeah. you've got to have the data to understand mm-hmm. what your costs are so that you know what's your tolerance for risk. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate you it. Absolutely. And, uh, always great to have Information Builders in. Go to informationbuilders.com. You can find their, the stories, I guess, the St. Luke's information and yep. other stuff on the product. So Wonderful. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Enjoy the conference. Take care. All right. Care. Thank you. And there you have it from Information Builders. We're now going to bring in Jess. You can do another little talk here. So this is Health Innovation Media at the HIM 17 conference. Hi, this is Jessica DeMassa, and I'm back here um, with Health Innovation Media. We are broadcasting live from the Conversa Health booth, and I am joined right now by Jamie Edwards. Uh, Jamie, why don't you introduce yourself for everybody who's listening? Sure. Jamie Edwards, the CEO of CloudBreak Health, which is a unified telemedicine platform that's in 650 hospitals doing over 60,000 encounters a month. Wow, Jamie. So tell me a little bit more about CloudBreak. So unpack that for me. What does that all mean? (laughs) Sure. The company actually started as a language services business. So hit a button on the screen and within 30 to 60 seconds, get your interpreter resource at the push of a button. We currently cover 60 languages, um, doing you know in in video and 250 in audio. But what we realized was that over time we had 5,000 video endpoints in the field, and that hospitals were having problems collaborating with each other. And we saw our platform as a mechanism to do that. So we started adding other services like Telestroke, Telepsych, and after that. It just seemed natural to keep adding specialties and specialties and specialties. Oh, I see and you're building like a marketplace, more or less. We're building a healthcare marketplace cool. and making telemedicine frictionless. So is it is it frictionful right now? <laughs> yes. So currently, so currently as it sits today, if we go back for history, right, telemedicine 1.0 was pick up the phone, call your doc. Telemedicine 2.0 was let's add video. But the video that was added, the investments that were made, they were largely around WebRTC technologies, which okay. by default aren't interoperable. Right. You have to have the same software or the same browser on you know, each, each side of that discussion. So for us, what we attempted to do was create an open standards video platform and make video interoperable. Okay. So on our platform, whether you're on Skype for Business, Polycom, VidYO, um, or Cisco, we can integrate that and make a call as easy as just handing a dial structure. And so what it's done is it's allowed hospitals who are on one platform to collaborate with hospitals who are on another and really democratize, if you will, the market 
because now we're breaking down silos. Okay, so no longer do I need to just talk to the one person who has the other piece of software that can talk to my end. I can talk to anybody. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so that Anyone allows who's on standards-based video. Okay, and so yeah. that allows this whole marketplace concept to really be something that you can build toward because it's like you can pull in resources from everywhere. Right, and imagine a hospital who once was saying, I need to have telemedicine and I'm going to do it as a consumer because I need to bring services into this hospital. Now say, well, I can offer it as well. So on our platform, someone can consume language services and consume telepsych from some of our leading partners. And on the other side, they can provide telestroke or provide telegi and telenephrology. It's turned this telemedicine discussion into something that's a strategic imperative for hospitals. And it's allowed them to get and ROI is far above what they would get with another provider. Okay, well, talk, let's talk a little bit more about that because I feel like, generally speaking, in the industry, we've been hearing a lot more about telemedicine. I feel like actually it's like it's having its moment right now. Yeah, everybody like is, is looking. Yeah. Everybody is looking for a telemedicine solution. We're looking at it as a way to reduce the cost of care. Um, and I think even with rural hospitals, this is a way for them to stay in business more or less. Sure. So it's really becoming, you know, more of a critical issue in terms of accessibility of care. Talk to me about what you're seeing. I mean, from your vantage point, you know, in some of in terms of, of some of the trends moving forward, what's next then for telemedicine? Yeah, well for us, right, we started off as a healthcare disparities company. And the first disparity that we saw was limited English proficient and deaf and hard of hearing patients. And then we discovered you had mentioned rural telemedicine. Yeah. There are just as many medical deserts in some of our nation's largest cities today as there are in rural healthcare. People just seem to understand the rural use case better. Sure. It's about Yes, I can, I can totally conceptualize that if I'm in a rural environment, I might not have access to a neurologist. Right? So great, we'll bring that in over telemedicine. But even in Los Angeles, and an mm -hmm. example of that is the partnership that we have with Avanti Hospitals and University of Southern California. So Avanti was a language services client. And what ended up happening was they said, we want to become an accredited stroke center. And we want to do that via telemedicine. And we want to be able to keep patients in our community so we don't have to transfer them out to a higher level of care. Because the studies have shown that if you're transferring patients out to a higher level of care, it's a much longer recovery time. They don't have their local support network, sure. right? Mom can't come in and stop into the hospital so easily because I'm 10 miles down the road as opposed to two miles down the road. And so in order to improve outcomes, they said we want to keep people in the community and within their support systems. So we were able to structure a deal between them and the University of Southern California mm -hmm. so they could have tier one academic stroke consults, right? We're going to be seeing much more of that type of use of telemedicine going forward. We view it as the new stethoscope. Okay. Everyone, every doctor should be integrating telemedicine into their daily practice. It is a, it is a much tool. more efficient way to be able to handle certain parts of their care days. Right, it's whether it's synchronous yeah. or asynchronous. No, and it's, I mean, it is a tool, and I think, I mean, it's, it's opening things up for more collaborative kind of medicine, more collaborative care, which is going to lead to hopefully better care for the patient. Well, that's exactly right. So one thing that we're looking at doing is structuring a care team around the patient. Okay. And the hashtag for our company is humanized healthcare. And everyone's talking about being patient-centric. So mm -hmm. we're on board with that train. But the way that we think we solve that problem is by making the technology obscenely easy to use for the provider. And most of the tools that we've given providers today... Not easy. <laughs> not easy to use. I think electronic medical records are kind of case in point oh gosh, when right. it comes to that, mm -hmm. right? So yep. what we're trying to do say let's restore a little bit of the joy of calling back to these physicians let's sure. make their lives easier and let's make the tech fun for them to use why are we so afraid of fun in healthcare? I love that, and I love the humanized healthcare tagline. And I think, you know, being a telehealth company, um, it's interesting because it's like you literally are, you know, humanizing by putting a face to that care on the other side of, of, the, of the phone or right. whatever device it comes across. Right. right. And so now we can take this technology and use it to break down the four walls of a hospital mm -hmm. and extend what we're calling branded care networks sure. into the community. 
on our platform, they're all private label. So if one of our clients says, hey, Jamie, we'd like to have a initiative and get started, I'd like to consume these services from you, provide the network, we create that platform in their field, launching the marketplace, but it's all interoperable with the rest of the hospitals that are on the platform. Yeah, and we know um, interoperability is one of the best buzzwords here at yes, Tim's every year, year after year. We I'm amazed at the number of interface companies that are here right oh, now. Oh, there are a lot of interface companies People here. clearly have seen a need and need to address it. Yes, right. <laughs> clearly. What, speaking of Hims, what else are you seeing here at Hims? It's been, I'm amazed at the breadth of the show. Really? In what right. way? Besides the fact that the uh, exhibit hall is like a mile long. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and we've definitely all gotten our steps in going to see all the companies. Seeing the proliferation of more interface companies that are out there, because typically I've always thought there are three or four go-tos, but now you're seeing new modalities applied to interfacing, even artificial intelligence, and seeing some of that happen yeah, here. Yeah, definitely. Seeing more medical groups show up, saying we'd like to offer our services, uh, you know, via telemedicine using the technology. There's been a lot of process, a lot of workflow solutions. Yes, I've seen a lot of workflow solutions, a lot of risk solutions yes. here as well. Yes. Is and there I, anything that's, that's been missing for you? You've, you've been coming to him for a while. Yeah. Anything that, you, that you're surprised that you haven't seen? You know, not yet. Okay. I think the really exciting thing about healthcare is each year you come to him, there's a new little crop or sub-segment of companies that pop up. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know people were looking to address that need, and that's great. It's yeah. great to see that you know, there's riches in the niches, if you will, and people are really <laughs> starting to get involved with the specialization mm-hmm. of the tools that can be applied. But... I think it's really great to be able to get 40,000 people together who are focused on solving healthcare's biggest issues in one place. And it's one of my favorite things about the conference is being able to come back, meet people who are doing really cool things in healthcare and, and see that progress. So talk to me a little bit about some of the people that you've been, you know, talking with over the last couple of days. What are, I mean, cause I always feel like some of the best conversations happen, you know, in, in between the sessions yeah, and yeah. in the meetings, like in the, in the networking events that happen afterwards. So what's everybody talking about? What have you been in conversations about? I'm interested to know from your vantage point. Interoperability is a big deal. Okay. You know, we are definitely hearing from the market that the concept of what we're doing in telemedicine. So one of the things that we're in the process of developing right mm-hmm. now is an EMR normalization engine. What is that? Right. So <laughs> all telemedicine physicians who are working at multiple hospitals currently have to learn multiple EMRs. Right. So our goal as a company is to say, why is that? We should be able to show them one interface and have all everything happen on the back end from an integration standpoint. Okay. Right. So if I'm a physician and I'm a neurologist and I have hospital A, hospital B, hospital C, I learn one platform. I log into that platform, happens on the back end. I can document in those systems through this single interface, and it makes my life 10 times easier because I don't have to learn McKesson, Epic, and Cerner if that happens to be who the hospitals are. Each one of those companies has great platforms. Sure. But what they haven't done well is play nicely with each other. Right. Right. And there was actually an interesting um, article that I actually just tweeted uh, that was around Epic coming up with a more open platform. Right. And so for that, instance seem epic move in that direction who typically one would thought of as being you know somewhat right. siloed has an amazing emr product but to see them move towards open is really great that's excellent that's some yeah. good leadership from a very big company and Jamie, yeah. real quick before we move off of that point if anybody wants to find that article on twitter what's your handle so they can look you up at jamie edwards j-a-m-e-y edwards okay perfect yeah thank you um, the other thing i wanted to ask you real quick you know um one of the things that's been surprising me, actually, at this conference is how people are not really talking about the 
the things that are happening in the political environment around us. Right. It's been, right. It's been like we've been blissfully unaware here um, yeah. on the trade show floor right. um, in Orlando, and it's been surprising to me how people are really not talking about um, the potential of ACA repeal. Have you been hearing anything about that? And you know, what, what's the vibe you're getting? Yeah. The, the the buzzword of the day is uncertainty. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about that. Uh, <laughs> if, if there's one thing that we've seen, it's that the current regime is unpredictable, mm-hmm. or maybe predictably unpredictable. There is you a, go. Is a way to say it. <laughs> and so everyone's waiting with bated breath saying, okay, which way is the direction going? Is ACA going to be repealed? What we're hearing um, President Trump say, I was used to saying Mr. Trump and then President-elect Trump and now you know, President Trump, is centered around that he's actually starting to move towards some of the ideas that are there. Maybe all of the ACA isn't so bad. And so I think certain ideas are going to stick. Okay, what do you think is going to stick? Value-based purchasing, I think, is a great example okay. of that. You know, Some of the innovations that have come of CMS have been great ideas and great leaps forward and great steps of progress. I think value-based purchasing and moving away from the fee-for-service environment is a big part of that. When you take a look at value-based purchasing, that makes HIMS all the more important because it's these technologies that are going to create value for patients and value for providers going forward. Right. They're analytics that are going to empower patients to take more control of their care. And that was actually a big theme that we've been hearing is how do we empower the patient? Yeah. One of my big you know, the things I believe in wholeheartedly is that we as a nation and we as a healthcare system have almost done too good of a job of taking care of people and not demanding enough responsibility from the patient, right? We never want to take the human component out of it. And part of that is taking responsibility for ourselves in our own lives. And so how do you do that? Yeah, I was just going to say. Well, you know, I, th- I think you spoke to e-patient Dave I did. earlier, I right? Moments ago. And one of his things is let's give them the information they need to be successful. Right. How many people in this room could raise their hand and say they have access to their own patient record? How many people are actually making use of the information that's on their Fitbit and integrating it and using it to change their human behaviors? Those are the types of things that I think are going to be really powerful going forward. So value-based purchasing and then patient empowerment. Patient empowerment. Well, Jamie, I think um, we are close to to, close to our mark here, right? We've got about time for one more question or okay, so. Sure. So I'm curious to know, you know, you've been walking around. What kinds of things are you looking for from from your perspective? I mean, you're the CEO of a telehealth company, so yeah. what kinds of what kinds of things are you looking for and have your eye out for in terms of innovation on the health IT side? I'm a little bit of an exponential technology freak. I love researching and hearing about things like blockchain, um, artificial intelligence, 3D printing. Those types of technologies that are really game changers. Yeah. There are some technologies that are evolutionary. And as much as I am in the telemedicine business, I understand that telemedicine is an evolutionary technology. Sure. And it can change the game in a big way, but it is a simple, practical solution to what is a big problem. But when you take a look at something like artificial intelligence and, app- and its applications, and IBM Watson is here and a yeah. few other companies, right? Uh, you take a look at those technologies, and those are really, really exciting, and their potential is boundless. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people fear that boundless potential, and a lot of people are starting to embrace the boundless potential. But even those, those leapfrogging technologies, those game-changing technologies, have an evolutionary aspect. So artificial intelligence first application is going to be to help providers make better decisions by being able to analyze data on their behalf. But the provider should still be driving the show right. and is still driving the show. So it's a melding of this human and technology aspect that I think we're going to be seeing more of going forward. Is there, um, in, t- in terms of, we were talking with ePatient Dave earlier about, yeah. about blockchain, and yes. we got into a, this, this ancillary discussion about paradigm shifts, and, you know, what that really means in terms of, like, you know, changing the mindset and you know, the expectations and the demands of, of what, what the generation around that paradigm shift wants. Right. And so I'm wondering from your vantage point, you know, what kinds of, what kinds of things are you seeing in the marketplace as far as shifting wants and needs? 
from providers. I mean, what has all of this technology done? Has it made them better consumers? I mean, we hear a lot about the consumerization of healthcare, and you know, there's obviously we're sitting in the middle of this giant trade show. There's right. a lot of choice that can be made. So, what are you what are you seeing in your clients and the hospital systems and the providers you work with? What kind of demands are they putting on telemedicine? They want it to be simple, okay, and they really want to understand the business models around it. Well, talk more about that. Telemedicine has typically been looked at as if we're going to go through our strategic process, oh, we need to be doing it because other hospitals are doing it. And yes, it does seem like a better way to care for patients, but where's the ROI? And so the ROI initially started off as care avoidance, it's cost avoidance. Mm-hmm. What can I do to make sure this patient doesn't readmit to the hospital? Where I can do a telemedicine visit and I, after discharge, I can do a post-discharge follow-up call with them via telemed. I can look at the wound, see if it's infected. Right. Right. And work towards early intervention in case something happens so that they don't have to come back to the facility. Mm-hmm. Or I can, if they were dispositioned to the skilled nursing facility, I can do that as well. Part of good follow-up is is driving that process. So people have asked us for those types of services. Sure. We have seen our hospitals want an integrated platform. So why are they have, I won't mention names, why do they have vendor A for patient portal, vendor B for telepsych, vendor C for telestroke, and they're all on different technology platforms. Is it possible for those to converge? Absolutely. I mean, we're sitting here with thousands of boots around us. Is that We've possible? done it. <laughs> We've done it. It's been done today, and we have it rolled out. We have it rolled out. Actually, the USC Avanti partnership is a great example, great example of, of that, that. Okay. Right? because they're getting language services and they're getting telestroke all on a single platform. And we are currently working with one of the largest telepsych companies in the country um, to do the same thing for them. Excellent. Well, we know the conver- convergence is what the future ahead, for, especially as far as exponential technologies and things go. And we look forward to seeing, um, Jamie, what you at Cloudbreak are going to be able to do to help, you know, drive more innovation and more convergence in, ter- in terms of what what people are looking for in these solutions in telemedicine. It seems to be the natural evolution of things, right? Definitely. So thank you for joining us. Um, we are going to be talking now, I think, to Mandy Bishop in a second here from Aloha Health. Um, Amazing. <laughs> yes. I haven't met Mandy in person yet. I'm oh, going to yeah. get to do so, this today. For, so for I'm so excited. For listening, um, Jamie, uh, there's, there's our large uh, Twitter community, all of our tweets um, <laughs> who are joining us. And so um, we are all um, friends of the hashtag Pink Socks movement yes. as well. Yes. Um, so if you want to follow Jamie on Twitter, you're at Jamie at J- and E-Y Edwards. Um, and then we'll ha- be talking to Mandy in a moment here. But thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you Jamie, for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to hear about telehealth and the work that you're doing to humanize healthcare. Well, until HIMSS 18. Uh, until. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. I feel like we've got, yeah. Oh, yeah. No pressure, no pressure. Jamie said I have to, so, so Jamie said I have to say brilliant things. 
Oh, well, that shouldn't be hard. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Hard. No, no pressure. So, um, Mandy, I'm Jessica DeMassa. It's good to meet yeah, you. Yeah, it's good to meet you, too, I think we've yeah. only met um, in Twitter land. On Twitter. So, uh, the, yeah. the, the Twitter sphere, man. The, the Twitter sphere. The power of the Twitter sphere to connect is just unparalleled. It really is. Yeah. It is. So, for everybody who may, may not know you on Twitter, what is your handle so they can look you up real quick? Okay, I am at Mandy B. Pro, and it is M-A-N-D-I-B-P-R-O. Okay, perfect. So, yes. everybody can look up Mandy. That's right. Be careful. Follow spelled the wrong way. There's, <laughs> there's a whole other, other thing. Yes, brilliant and insightful. So I'm going to actually jump off. I would like to talk about, um, oh, actually, why don't you introduce yourself for everybody who's listening here. Sure. Tell us about what you're doing with Aloha Health and, and just who you are in general. Sure, absolutely. So I, I'm Mandy Bishop. I'm the CEO, Chief Evangelist, and Co-Founder of Aloha Health. So we are a relatively new startup. We've been around for about six months now, and we are focused 100% on making social and behavioral determinants of health actionable for program design decision support, clinical intervention decision support, and engagement decision support to help really personalize the healthcare experience and design the appropriate care pathway and the appropriate engagement methodology for you as a person. Okay, break that down for me, Mandy, because that, yes, that, that was a whole lot. Yeah, that was a whole lot. So say that you go to see your doctor and that you're a diabetic patient, right? Okay. And say that you have, you're going to have particular challenges around your lifestyle. You're going to have a particular way that your family interacts. You're going to have a particular uh, when where you live and how you live and, and the opportunities that exist within your community sure. are going to impact your ability to manage your health. So if your doctor is able to understand the challenges and the motivations and the unique trust factors that are yours and yours alone, they would be better able to facilitate a care management plan that's going to work for you. So that is what we are developing is the opportunity to make that level of insight. It's not enough to say we know that these things matter, like the social universe matters and you know where you live matters. We all know geography is a sure. vital sign, like, but it's not enough to know that it matters. It's having to be able to access what I should do about it at the point of care that is going to be transformational. So that's what we're working on. Okay, so how are you doing this? Because that is a massive undertaking. <laughs> it is a massive undertaking. It is a giant. Thing, so. that's <laughs> that's that's who's that's who's that's 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 we're not talking about clinical data. What are we talking about? I am talking about things like, you know, uh, all, uh, socioeconomic data around you, right? Okay. Demographic data, socioeconomic data. I'm talking about survey-based data that understands the trust factors, like what information sources do you trust for what means? So if I'm talking about healthcare, do you trust websites? Do you trust user-generated content that's on YouTube? Do you trust newsletters? You know, do you trust print media? Do you trust information that comes from a provider? Do you trust your pharmacist? Information comes from a pharmacist. What kind of information? Is it a billboard? Is it a brochure? Like is that level of specificity sure. about the information sources? Um, and then things about, you know, your, your household. Are you a multi-generational household? So if you are a Medicare, you know, if you're a Medicare recipient, are you caring for young grandchildren? And, and do you have, you know, adult children living with you? If you are an adult parent, like are you a sandwich generation where you're caring for your children, you're also caring for your, your elderly parents who are living in the same household? And how does that impact your ability to access care appropriately? Mm -hmm. And how does that impact your ability to effectively care for yourself? So all of those data points that exist outside of healthcare, those are the things we're looking at. So we've started by identifying the data points that we believe matter. Okay. Yeah, that we, and, and amassing a data set and blending in uh, your data sources from things like climatology data, crime data, traffic data. You're kidding. No. Okay. <laughs> 
That's all of these things that matter, no, right? Because these things all matter. Yeah, right. if I can't, I'm not going to tell. I'm not going to tell you from an exercise program standpoint that you need to get out and walk around your neighborhood if there are 57 active gangs within right. your neighborhood. Like I'm just, that's that's it's, probably not going to be advice. that's not going to be helpful to you. Exactly. Text message, right? Like you know, <laughs> being dead is probably not healthy, no, right? Like we want to make sure that we prevent. It's a greater harm. health risk in you going out to work out than there is for you to just stay in. Exactly. <laughs> so you would, you know, you would recommend maybe alternative exercise sure. programs like those. But that's the kind of insight. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.